Well, good morning on this July long weekend. Hope you're going to enjoy some extra time with family or friends. I know my family and I are going to do that this, uh, this afternoon and tomorrow on this great long weekend. This uh, morning we're wrapping up our origin series, which has been taking us through the first three chapters of Genesis. So if you're using the Pew Bible, you can turn to page three. Uh, should be nice and easy to find. The book of Genesis tells us this great story of humanity. It begins with the good news. People, men and women, were created in the image of God, and God looked at, at us and he said, this is very good. And that was the great news. But then creation came from that place of being filled with hope and joy. And, and then the bad news came was when humanity rejected God's leadership and said, we can do this better on our own. And from that day forward, pain and suffering and hopelessness entered the world. And we've been struggling with that ever since. And we see that in the world around us as people deal with that pain, that brokenness, as we read the news headlines and we see that pain exhibited again and again. And the question we want to answer this morning as we wrap up our series is, is there any hope? Can we live with hope? And as we enter this, this last talk in this series, I was thinking about who's present this morning. And there's three groups of people. For some of you, uh, you've heard this story many times, the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. And for you, it's a refresher. It's that reminder that we need constantly of the reality of who God is. For others, you're, perhaps you're here and you've never heard the story before. You've never heard how God intervenes in our lives and how he works in history. And perhaps you're hearing this information for the first time. And I would encourage you to listen closely. Or maybe you're here today and you're actually a person who is feeling defeated. A person who is dealing with brokenness. And the brokenness of your life, you feel like it's too much. And you wonder if there is hope. You wonder if God wants to speak into your situation or if he can speak into your, into your situation. And I want to just say to you that the, just listen this morning because God has something more for you. Because our God is a God of hope. And I believe you will find hope in his message this morning. Let's pray and then we'll dive into this. <clears throat> Father, I thank you that we are gathered here this morning. We could express who we are in our relationship with you through the songs that we sang. But Father, for the people this morning who are not in that place, who those words do not hit home, whether because it's brand new and not their experience or whether they're struggling, I pray that you would speak into our hearts and minds. You would speak into the struggling. You would speak into the doubting, the truth of who you are as we open up your word this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So how do we find hope? And I was, as I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking, well, what does the world tell us? How does the world tell us to find hope? What's the message is that I've heard repeatedly over the last 50 years of my life to go, what does the world say is the antidote to hopelessness? And I realized one of the answers that I've heard repeatedly is to tell us, well, your hopelessness is not your fault. Your situation is not your fault. The problem is the environment that you were raised in. Right? The, the hopelessness is outside of ourselves. Society and pop psychology often tells us it's not inside of you, it's from outside of you. It's your circumstances, it's your parents, it's the, your neighborhood, it's your country, it's the events that happen. 
And so we're told it's outside of ourselves. And I was thinking about that. And then this last week, I had this amazing opportunity. I flew to Winnipeg on Wednesday on June 26th because June 26th was my parents' wedding anniversary. And you say, well, why would you go there just for a wedding anniversary? Well, it was their 70th wedding anniversary. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to clap. I didn't do anything. Like, I just... I can't take any credit. Uh, my wife went and said, well, we've got to find a card for this. And then she came back and said, there is no card for the 70th. They don't make them. I said, well, they're not going to make any money off those cards, right? There's not very many sold. Uh, so we went there. I, I went there. My wife stayed here. I went there to celebrate. And a bunch of my parents' friends were there, about 30, 25, 30 people. And there's a bunch of people, a bunch of their friends who are their age who were at their wedding ceremony. Right? That blew me away. So all these people at this party, you know, they're like, my parents are turning 91 next, uh, next month in, in July and September. So all the people are about that age, roughly. So the party ended early, as you can, you know. <laughs> my sister said, it's over already. I said, they're 90 years old. I give them a break. They're going to be up in three hours again. <laughs> so but what struck me was, so my parents' story uh, is they're born in the Ukraine under communist rule. Uh, the Soviets killed both of my grandfathers when both my mom and dad were nine years old. Uh, they get out as German refugees. They meet in Berlin in a refugee camp. They escape from that without getting taken back to Russia. They end up in South America because Canada wouldn't let them in. And they get married there. And then nine years later, they come to Canada. And then I'm born. In a nutshell. Uh, and... But one thing I realized with my parents is I've never heard them complain. And I've asked about the stories of their, of their life. And I say, wasn't it hard? They go, oh, it was terribly hard. Our lives were threatened. We didn't know, you know, if we would make it. We, we had to establish ourselves in several countries. We, in these refugee camps, we had to hide from the bombing. We had to hide from the Russian agents who wanted to take us back to the Soviet Union. But they never complained. And then I listened to their friends talk about how my mom and dad never complained. And I was thinking about that. I said, well, if we're a product of our environment, I think my parents would be angry, bitter people. And they're not. And many of you would have similar stories in your family. We are not defined by our environment. If we are, that's our choice. It's like, okay, it's not environmental. I don't think it's that. That makes no sense. And biblical scholar uh, Bruce Waltke, I love how he puts it. He reminds us of this. He says that in contrast to much sociological thinking, namely that the way to improve humans is to improve their environment, he says, remember this, humanity at its best rebels in the perfect environment. Right? Adam and Eve, humanity at its best. No difficulty in the garden. Everything is taken care of. There is no relational problems. There is no physical threat to their existence. There is no economic threat to their existence. It is humanity at its best in the best possible environment. What do we do? We rebel. So it's not the environment. The Garden of Eden showed us that. Well, if it's not the environment, what else could it be? And I want to go to some great theologians to help us think through this. Theologians by the name of Kelvin and Hobbes. So Calvin is talking to his imaginary friend, uh, Hobbes, who's actually a doll, tiger doll, and we'll show you what, uh, what he says regarding this issue. So they're walking along. Calvin says, nothing I do is my fault. 
My family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. Your typical seven-year-old conversation. (laughs) Then he goes on to say, My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. And Hobbes, the great counselor, says, One of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. (laughs) And then Calvin says, I love the culture of victimhood. Right? Society will regularly tell us that we're victims of something. And that somehow we'll feel better our, for, about ourselves if we can figure out what we, how we've been victimized. The problem is, if you blame your environment, if you claim victim status, not a victim experience. Many people have been victimized in an experience. But if you claim that as your identity, I guarantee you, hopelessness, anxiety, worry, Fear, all the things that mark our world, and calling yourself a victim and putting a label on it will never bring hope into your world. Will never bring hope into your world. Just talk to anyone who, who claims their identity is that. And you will see the anxiety, you will see the hopelessness repeatedly. And it's not that bad things don't happen to us. It's actually where our identity lies. And when we sit there and claim victimhood and we blame someone else, what are we doing? We're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did, as we've heard over these last few weeks. Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. God is walking through the garden, and he's asked Adam and Eve, he says, God said, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? How do Adam and Eve answer? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit And I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, A serpent deceived me and I ate. The first time something happens where humanity makes a selfish decision to separate himself and herself from God, what do we do? We blame God for it. What have we been doing ever since? We've been blaming God for our problems. God, it's your fault. God, it's her fault. And she says it's a serpent's fault. Blame shifting is nothing new It's been happening since the beginning of time and it only guarantees our sense of hopelessness, our anxiety, our worry, our frustration. That's all it does. And unless we're willing to confront the root cause actually of hopelessness, we will always live a less than kind of life. What's a less than kind of life? A less than kind of life is the kind of life where our relationships will always be less than we hope for. Our community experience will always be less than we hope for. Our church life will always be less than we hope for. Our relationship with God will always be less than we hope for. Because we are looking everywhere else and to everyone else to solve the problems and the frustrations we have inside of us. That is that reality. Now, if you read the Bible, you go, well, is God a less than kind of God? You don't have to know much about God, but as you read his story in the Bible, excuse me, you see very quickly that that is not who God is. And I love how God uh, is described by the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the church in the city of Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, he says, Now to him, to God, who is able to do what? Immeasurably more than we 
than all we ask or imagine according to his power, God's power that is at work where? Within us. God is not just a more than kind of God. He's an immeasurably more than kind of God. Which means the good things I think about pale in comparison to who God is. My hopes for relationships pale in comparison to what God wants. For the relationships we have with each other. My hope for community life pales in comparison to what God has. My relationship with God pales in comparison to what he invites me to. And keeps wanting to grow within you and within me. You see, hope is only possible if we are willing to face reality. Hope is only possible if we're willing to face reality. Herman Miller, who was, uh, rather, Max Dupree, who was a CEO of the Herman Miller Furniture uh, Company, and he was the author of, of the book, Leadership is an Art. He famously said, the first task of a leader is to, re- to define reality. The first task of a leader is to define reality. Because if you don't define reality, you actually don't know how to lead or what issues to deal with. And that is true whether you're dealing with a corporation, like his furniture company, or whether that is you dealing with your own life. Now you might say, I'm not a leader. Well, you are a leader. Because you are the leader of your own life. No one else can lead you. Because you make decisions for yourself at the end of the day. The other reality is, you are the most difficult person to lead. Why is that true? Why are we the most difficult person to lead for ourselves? We are the most difficult person to lead because we judge ourselves by by our intentions, not by our actions. That's why we're difficult to lead. And so we'll cut ourselves slack. Because we go, well, I intended to do the right thing, and so because I intended, you know, it's not bad. Even though I didn't do it. Friends, we have to deal with our own reality, our personal reality. That's the place where hope begins. So Adam and Eve chose to believe the reality of the serpent. The serpent said, hey, there's a better reality for you than God's reality. In fact, why don't you become your own God? Why don't you can do better than God can do? So why don't you rule your own life? You can create create purpose for yourself better than God can. You can create security for yourself better than God can. You can create hope for yourself better than God can, was the message they were giving. But it wasn't reality. It was a false reality. But they embraced it. They believed it would be better for them if they ruled themselves. Better peace, prosperity, and purpose apart from God. What was the result? They lost their capacity to enjoy the good gifts of God. Perfection was replaced with pain. A joyful marriage became an unequal partnership. Happy cultivation of the earth became sweaty toil. The beautiful garden became this briar patch. Once eternal bodies began to slowly decay and die. Everything that was once good was turned on its head. And if you read through the book of Genesis, we we see very soon there was murder and there was rape. And there was disease and there was drunkenness. And death were the results of the sin of Adam and Eve. And the world we live in today continues down that path as we just open up the news any day and we see those effects on society. And remember that what God had created, he said, this is good. And he looked at people and he said, this is very good. And that nature was, was traded in for a sinful nature. Filled with sinful cravings. 
that's been inherited by all of us. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in the city of Rome, sums it up in a very brief statement when he says, through one man's disobedience, referring to Adam and Eve, many, referring to you and me, were made sinners out of relationship with God. That is our reality that we need to deal with. And that gets handed down from generation to generation. The impact of that decision that was made, the impact of that cascading event on our lives. But the beauty of it is that in the midst of that reality, God actually initiates hope. Hope can be found because of God's gracious initiatives. Right back in the book of Genesis, God actually began to initiate hope in beautiful ways. Even in the midst of that pain. How does he do that? God banished Adam and Eve to save them from themselves. Now often we think the banishment from the garden was a terrible consequence of what, was, of what they had done. But actually what God was doing is he was like a loving father disciplining a child. He was actually disciplining them to save them from themselves. Why was that an act of saving them from themselves? Uh, chapter 3 verse 22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So what God is saying, okay, they ate from the tree of good and evil, so now they're separated from God. If they eat from the tree of life, they will be separated from God for all of eternity. So God says, we need to get them out of here so they don't make another bad decision following the first bad decision. So God in his graciousness, like a loving father, actually pushes them out of the garden for their own good and our own good, actually. In verse 24 it says, God drove uh, out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, which is an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So first of all, God says, okay, I don't want the damage to get any worse. So we need to remove them from the garden. And then even as he's pronouncing judgment and the consequences of that decision, in Genesis chapter 3, we have this wonderful verse which foreshadows the coming of of a Savior, the coming of hope in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity or hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. The, The woman's offspring shall bruise your head. And you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So some commentators read that and they say, well, that just says that there's going to be conflict between men and women and snakes. That's what that means. R.C. Sproul, who's a biblical writer, commentator, professor, puts it this way. He says, uh, in making the promise to Adam and Eve that the serpent would be crushed, God was not telling a simple story to explain why human beings fear snakes. Instead, he was proclaiming cosmic warfare, the final defeat of Satan, and the renewal of the entire universe. Ultimately, this is done through Christ Jesus our Lord, the righteous seed of the woman who defeated sin and Satan by his death and resurrection. At that place where it looks like all of humanity is going off the rails, where where Satan has somehow had victory over God's plan, in the midst of that place of defeat, of despair, of hopelessness, God actually lays the foundation to say, this is what is coming. This is what is coming. And the serpent will strike the heel 
of the offspring of the woman and try and, and try and kill with the venom of the serpent. But the offspring of the woman, Jesus, will step on the head and crush the serpent, the evil one. And there is this message of hope. See, hope is possible when we are willing to assess our spiritual condition. Right? We, we assess our cultural, cultural condition. We recognize that we can't get hope by blaming it on the environment or on someone else. But we still have to assess our personal spiritual condition. And God actually gives us indicators what's going on inside of our soul. So uh, this is the fob uh, to my car. My key. This is actually my key. And I've had lots of cars over the years, but this one is unique. This is for uh, a Mini Cooper. And what this does uh, is, so normally when you drive your vehicle, if something goes wrong with your car, uh, you get a light on your dash. And on most cars right now, there's only one light, quite often. In fact, the mechanics call it an idiot light. That tells you what they think of us as drivers. Uh, because it just says there's something wrong. It doesn't tell you what it is. Uh, in the old days, cars would often say, oh, it's this or it's that. Nowadays, it's just a red light. Take it into the, uh, you know, it's, it's an engine light quite often. Take it in, plug it in. They plug it into the computer. You know, you pay your $100 or $150, and they say something's broken. Spend more money. It's usually how it goes. On my car, uh, all those codes are kept in this. So when I go in, I go up to the front desk of the, uh, the dealership, and they plug it in their computer, and they'll tell me, this is what's wrong. Saves me the 100 bucks. But they make up for it later on, trust me. <laughs> so it's, this, is, this is what I, every time the lights go on, I just take this in and say, okay, tell me, is this something I have to fix today, next month, next year, or am I just going to ignore it because I'm cheap? Uh, which one will I do? That's what it tells me. So God actually created that early warning system for you and for me. So when you wake up in the middle of the night because you're worrying, when you wake up, when you have anxiety that's twisting your stomach, when you're feeling hopelessness in your life, that's actually God saying, hey, these are my warning lights. These are my warning lights on the dashboard of your soul. Because I did not create you to live in anxiety and fear and worry and hopelessness. That was not what I created you for. That is a consequence of the fall. Because you thought as human beings you could be your own boss, your own leader, your own God. You thought you could do things better without relationship with me as your creator. So every time those warning lights go off, God's saying, hey, you need to get this taken care of. You need to walk back to your creator, the one who made you. That is the place where hope and healing is found. And the way that he did that, as he talked about in Genesis 3.15 is he foreshadowed the sending of his son. And I love how his son in the book of John, talking about himself, is saying, look what my father did back in Genesis. Look what he did throughout history because he pointed to the fact that I would be here today. He pointed to the fact that there would be hope and that the offspring of the woman would bring that hope. So Jesus, when he talks about the most, uh, it's the most famous verse probably in the Bible, John 3.16, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life, uh, should not perish and have eternal life. So even if you're not a Christ follower, chances are you've heard that verse, you've seen that verse somewhere. What we don't know is the two verses prior to that, John 3, 14 and 15. 
John 3, 14 and 15 say, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, Jesus, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what's he talking about there? Why is he talking about the serpent? Why is he talking about Moses? Well, he's referring to Numbers chapter 21 in the Bible. Numbers chapter 21 is this interesting story where Moses is leading the people of God. God's rescued them from slavery, but they're continually saying, God, we don't trust you anymore. Even though you've done all these great things, we don't trust you and we want to go it on our own. We want to be our own God. We want to do things our way. And God is repeatedly reminding them of their own sinfulness in doing that and how it's bad for them to do that. So in this case, God actually sends venomous snakes And snakes come into the camp and start biting people. So now the people go, Moses, you have to save us. God, you have to save us. You go, well, wait a minute. 20 minutes ago, you said I didn't know what I was doing. No, no, no. You know what you're doing. You have to save us. So in Numbers 21, God gives Moses instructions. He says, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God is reminding the people of Genesis chapter 3. God is reminding the people of the serpent and the serpent's action and the misleading of the serpent to trust in themselves instead of trusting in God. And Moses, in doing this act, doesn't know he's actually doing something prophetic that Jesus will refer to later on but it's a foreshadowing of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And as the people looked to that, they were saved and healed from the venomous bite of the the serpent. See, all of humanity has been polluted by the serpent's venom. The Bible makes that so clear. Paul tells us that no one is righteous. Not one of us is righteous. In other words, not one of us can come to God and say, God, I deserve your blessing based on who I am. He says, no one can do that. And he says, I have made a way, starting in Genesis chapter 3, starting right in the beginning of the problems, I have made a way for healing to come. I have made a way for restoration to come, for hope to be experienced. When your warning lights on your dash go off and you're experiencing anxiety and fear and hopelessness and pain. And the end result is what Paul describes so wonderfully when he's talking to the church in Corinth. And he says, for our sake, for you and for me, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean for us to become the righteousness of God? It means that our sin goes on to Jesus and his natural righteousness comes on to us. It's what he gives us when we say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I recognize my rebellion. See, it's the beautiful thing that God has done and walked out throughout Scripture from Genesis to Numbers to John and then throughout the rest of Scripture. Understanding that he voluntarily took, took on our sin, which means he takes on our hopelessness, he takes on our pain, he takes on our disillusionment, he takes on our fear. And in exchange gives us hope and he gives us joy and he gives us peace regardless of our circumstance. As the beauty of what he does. But it's only possible if we actually recognize our need. You see, hope is found when we recognize our need for God's grace. 
Hope is found when we recognize our need for God's grace. Because grace is useless if we do not recognize our need for it. So we all know what justice is. If you drive in Vancouver, justice is what you want for all the other drivers that you, that you meet every day. As they're running red lights. Right? You go, justice is where are the police and why are they not here right now? Right? We want that justice. Get what you deserve. I experienced mercy the other day, which is not getting what I deserve. Right? That's mercy. I was in Winnipeg for my parents' thing. The next morning, I went out for breakfast with one of my friends, and I thought I had parked in an appropriate place. And I walk out, and there's a piece of paper behind my windshield wiper. I'm like, oh, shoot. And I walk up, and I pull out the piece of paper, and it was my favorite kind of ticket. You know why? Because it said, warning. (laughs) And then it said, fine, zero. I was like, yes, yes. I'm living right, yes. (laughs) <laughs> I was so excited. That's mercy. Because he had, I looked at the sign, I went, he could have fully written me a ticket. I was inappropriately parked for like an hour and 20 minutes. One of my friends who was here last night said, well, grace would have been if on the backside of the ticket it said, and here's a free coffee. <laughs> that would have been grace. All right, so mercy is, is uh, not getting actually what I deserve. But grace is getting what I do not deserve. And how can you make a strong enough, a good enough definition of grace? When I became a Christ follower, I was 18 years old. I was taught, you know, grace means God's riches at Christ's expense. It's that righteousness exchange, innocence and righteousness. But realizing that grace is something that I cannot earn. I don't deserve it. There is no way I can work for it. I can't buy it. I can't have a good enough education for it. There is no status in society that I can attain that somehow says, okay, that's good enough, God says, now you get grace. Right? There is absolutely nothing I bring to the table that warrants grace. And that is true from the very beginning of time because God's act of grace was actually the creation of Adam and Eve, putting them in the garden. There was absolutely nothing that Adam and Eve did for all the blessings that God gave them. And when God initiated in Genesis 3.15 to say there will be a way, that was an act of grace. Every time he forgives people throughout the Old Testament as the people of God continue to want to be their own God, God exhibits an act of grace in bringing restoration. And God does that with us today too. The act of grace. And we all need grace. We all need to recognize our need for grace. And how God has extended that to us. But there's two kinds of people I want to speak to specifically regarding grace. It's sort of two different ends of the spectrum. I want to speak this morning to perfectionists. So I'm German through and through. I think German could be synonym for perfectionist. Now, I know I'm not the only culture here that's a perfectionist. So let's just be honest. It's not just Germans. It's more than Germans. And, and so uh, the typical thing with a perfectionist, we would say, you know, as something happens and, and say our kids do something, our kids come home, give the report card, you know, and it's like, you know, all A's and one B. You go, that's pretty good. But what does a perfectionist say? It could be better. Right? When God does something in our life, that's pretty good. But we don't say it all out, but we think, but it could be better. When someone does something, go, oh, that's pretty good. And then our head says, oh, but it could be better. Right? That's what perfectionists say. If you're a Christ follower and you're a perfectionist, often because we cannot deny the reality of who God is 
and the fact that he sent Jesus and Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. So we go, okay, Jesus was here, that's a fact. Jesus died, that's a fact. Jesus rose from the dead, that's a fact. Am I perfect? Well, some people say no, so I guess that's a fact. So I ask for his forgiveness. But then as a Christ follower, we kind of go, I'll take it from here. I'll serve better, I'll give better, I'll do better, I'll raise my kids better. Friends, it's a lie of the evil one. And if you go, you know, there's a strain of perfectionism in me. There's only one thing we can do, and that is to say, oh God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Because what you do is you push away grace. Because you're saying you don't need it. And then when God says to you, you know what, I have something for you to do, then you say, well, I don't know. I'm not sure I got time. Why do you say that? Because you don't understand grace. Because if you understand grace and that God has given you absolutely everything, from the air you breathe to the, to the cells in your body, to every gift that you have, to every, every asset that you own, that he has given you to steward, it's all from him. So the only answer we have whenever God says, I have something for you to do, the only answer that's appropriate response to grace is yes. Because we're not in a position to barter. We're not in a position to barter. And I've had to ask forgiveness for my pride so many times. I hate being wrong. Unless I'm wrong about being wrong. You've heard the joke, I thought I was wrong once, but then I was mistaken. I'm okay with that kind of wrong. Right? It's that pride inside of me. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So if that's the place you live, that's the thing you struggle with. And if you wonder if, you're, if you struggle with pride, just ask you know, a family member. They'll tell you. If you're un- unsure, ask a good friend. It'll be clear. God wants to extend his grace to you, but he can only do that. He can only do that if you say, God, forgive me of my perfectionism. I recognize my need for grace. And when you do that, his hopefulness comes into your life. The filling of the spirit, the leading of the spirit, the joy of the spirit, all those things. Because when you say that's pretty good, but it's not quite good enough, it could be better. That is a place of hopelessness. That is a place of joylessness. Because what you focus on is the difference of what is and what you think it could be. And that gap brings no joy. That gap brings no joy. In fact, if you're a perfectionist, you probably go, you know, I think the garden would be pretty good because everything was perfect, except I would not have made the mistake Adam and Eve made. That's what a perfectionist would think. And the reality is we all would have made the same mistake. That's the human condition. The second group I want to talk to is the other end of the spectrum. It's the group that says, you don't know my story. It's the group that says, no, I, I, God couldn't forgive me. God couldn't accept me. It's a group that walked in this morning that with hopelessness. That God can't touch my situation. That God can't speak into my heart. God can't speak into my life. God doesn't recognize my name. He doesn't recognize my face. Friends, that's a lie of the enemy. That is an absolute lie of the enemy. Your, your past is not your identity. It is simply your story. And all of us have one. And you are no further away than, from God than anyone else. You are also no closer. 
We're all in the same place. And the reality is that all of us have a past. All of us have a story, whether it's rooted in pride or whether it's rooted in pain. And God says, your story is what you brought in the door this morning, but today you are a place, at a place of decision with what to do with your story. And I've extended my grace to you. And if you recognize your need of it, whether it is forgiveness for pride or you're reaching out in pain, you can make that choice today to walk into the hope that God has for you. And then the identity that you have is as his child. See, our future is always dependent on the choices we make today and how we respond to what God reaches out to us with. And we, we may come from a painful past or a prideful past. It's irrelevant. God will speak into our pain and meet us in our pain, wherever that pain is. Because he says, I want to meet you there and I want to bring my hope to that place of pain. To that place of recognizing it's not your environment. You are not a victim, even if you've been victimized. Your victimization is part of your story. It is not your identity. And he says, I I want to meet you today with my grace because my grace is sufficient. It is sufficient for your pride. It is sufficient for your pain. And you can choose hope today. And if you are here today and you're living in pain, God wanted you here today. He wanted you to hear this word. If you're listening on the internet to this message, it's because God had this word for you today. Do not push it away, friends. The final point is hope is found when we respond to God's grace by placing our faith in him. Hope is found when we respond to God's grace by placing our faith in him. So when your warning lights go off on the dashboard of your life, when you feel the anxiety, when you feel hopelessness, when you feel pain, when you feel fear, when you feel anger, all those signals that say something is wrong, that is your body saying, turn to the one who actually answers your deepest longings, the one who extends grace to you, the one who is the author of hope, the one in whom there is no fear, the one who is fully trustworthy, the one whom from the very beginning of humanity, from the very beginning of history said, I will make a way because I will crush the head of the serpent through the striking of the son, the seed of the woman through his death and resurrection. So friends, this is a great day because it is a day of hope. Let's stand for closing prayer. I want to pray for a couple of groups uh, this morning. The first is if you've never made that decision, if this is the first time you've heard about God's love for you and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, just pray with me very simply. Then I want to pray for those who are struggling with pride, who are perfectionists. And then I will pray for us as we go. So if you want to give your life to Christ and ask him to come and fill your life with his presence, pray with me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for paying the price for my sins. Thank you for your outrageous grace. Please come and forgive my sin. Please come and be my leader every day. Please come and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please come and remove my shame. I am not a victim. I am not my story. Thank you for that. My identity is in you. I am your child. Please come and conquer my fear of the future. And guide me every day of my life as I learn to walk as your child. 
Father, I want to pray for those who are struggling with perfectionism, who struggle with accepting your grace, with receiving your grace, who struggle with trusting you. And Father, I know I've had those seasons in my life, and Father, I repent of my pride. Oh God, thank you for your grace and extending forgiveness again and again. Father, for the people here this morning for whom that's touched a root, I pray they would give their pride to you now. I pray they would declare their dependency on you today. I pray they would apologize to whoever they need to apologize to and would walk in submission to you and your goodness. And Father, when I think of this family weekend where often we spend more time with family, I pray, Father, that your grace would extend to our families, to our relationships. I pray that we would walk in greater grace towards each other and to our world. I pray that as we walk as Christ followers, those of us who know you, we would extend that grace you've extended to us, to all that we meet, and point people to you every day. Father, be with us as we go from this place, that our lives would give you glory and honor, and we would reflect the truth and the goodness of who you are to everyone that we meet. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.